Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I, I've just found, I'm the chair, my name is Tim Frost, I'm a governor of the school here, and I'm just about to introduce uh, Russ. I've just found I've got some instructions to the chair, and it's, uh, it tells me how to deal with people who are disruptive. Do we think I need this? <laughs> I think I'll throw it away. Good stuff. Um, good evening. Uh, as I say, my name is Tim Frost, I'm a, a governor of the, uh, of the London School of Economics. If you believe the recent uh, QS rankings, I'm sorry to report that we are only the second best social science university in the world, but we're working on it. I'm sure there are some students and perhaps even some faculty here, and soon I, I hope will be the best social science university in the world. But uh, very good evening to you. Welcome to, to the school. A very warm welcome to the school. And also a very warm welcome to uh, Russ Robert, our speaker this evening. Russ is a research fellow at the uh, Stanford University's Hoover Institute and probably well known to some of you as uh, the podcaster Econ Talker. Russ, I got that right? Yes, the Fantastic. podcast is Econ Talk. I'm Econ Talker on Twitter, which is embarrassing, but that's the name I chose. I apologize. Um, and, and my favorite, uh, my favorite aspect of uh, Russ's work, he, he blogs at Cafe Hayek. Uh, and of course, we're all very proud of Friedrich Hayek, who is a professor here at the London School of Economics. And I've heard people say that he spoke in this lecture theatre. So Russ tells me this is the first time he's been uh, to London. I imagine, in fact, I know he, uh, uh, he's a, uh, an, uh, a keen student of uh, Hayek's thinking. And so he's following very much in uh, his footsteps, um, uh, speaking, speaking here. He's also a sometime maker of rap videos. I'm, I'm told that uh, five million people, I see some smiles in the audience, so some people must have seen those. Some five million people have watched the uh, rap video uh, that Russ made with the aforementioned Friedrich von Hayek uh, and some guy from Cambridge that went to Bretton Woods and worked with Harry Dexter White on organising the yeah. IMF. I can't remember his name. But <laughs> that guy, anyway. Um, it's a long name, lots of names. Don't remember it. That's right. Um, tonight, Russ is uh, going to reveal for us the real story behind the invisible hand. Um, drawing uh, on the book he's just written, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And as you came in, you saw that there are copies of that book outside uh, the old theatre. Uh, I've read the book. I enjoyed it uh, very much. Um, I enjoyed it so much I went to the, the LSE bookshop and tried to buy a, a, a copy or get a copy of Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiment. There is a copy left, <laughs> and it's a lot more expensive than Russ's book. So <laughs> I'll, I'll go tomorrow and see if anyone has, uh, uh, has, uh, has bought it. But in, in his book, Russ draws on Adam Smith um, to offer advice on social media practices, demonstrating how what Smith wrote about 250 years ago is relevant today. So I read Russ's uh, interpretation of Smith's advice very carefully, and so I have no hesitation in pointing out that the hashtag for tonight's event is LSEA Smith, and I encourage you to, to tweet. Um, so Russ is going to speak now. Uh, he'll answer questions um, at the end. Russ, you're okay with some questions Absolutely. at the end? Absolutely. Um, and uh, uh, I very much look forward to that. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Russ Roberts.
So this is, um, this is a great day for me, uh, partly for two reasons. One is, is, is standing on the stage where Friedrich Hayek stood, at least I like to think so, or something like it, somewhere in his proximity. And it caps off the day because earlier today I was at the Royal Society of Arts. And I was waiting to give my talk. I was off in a room to the side. And I had been told that Adam Smith had been a member of the Royal Society of Arts, which I thought, boy, that's cool. But cooler than that is that in the room I was waiting in, it was a very nondescript room. They had some fruit and cookies and water and, and tea and coffee for the speaker. And nothing remarkable about the room at all except for one thing. In the corner was this extremely ornate, interesting, large, very large chair. And it said, there's a little sign. It says, the president's chair, uh, designed by William Chambers. Anybody here know who William Chambers is? William Chambers was an architect and designer. He designed Somerset House uh, across the way. Uh, and making it even better for me was the fact that, according to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, Chambers's chair is one of the first examples of neoclassical furniture design. That's an economics joke for anybody who takes economics. But even better, it said 1759 on it. 1759 is a very special date. 1759 was the publication of the first edition of The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith, which is what my book is based on. So I'm looking at a chair that could have held the posterior of Adam Smith. That's, that's pretty exciting, right? So I'm thinking, how, just like I'm on this stage, how cool would it be to sit in a chair that Adam Smith may have sat on? The problem is that there was a sign that said, do not sit in the chair. That's the bad news. The good news is, I was alone. So did I sit in the chair, or did I not sit in the chair? And I'm going to leave that for the end. And if I get to it, uh, if I forget it, because of jet lag, you'll remind me about the chair, okay? That's the deal. But I wanna, at the end, I want to explain two things, uh, both of which come from Adam Smith. One is why I wanted to sit in the chair, which is a little bit peculiar, don't you think? And secondly, why I ch- made the decision to sit in it or not to sit in it, and how Adam Smith made me, helped me make that decision, and at least helped me understood, understand the decision. So but what I'm going to do tonight before I get to that is I want to talk about the invisible hand. Now, the invisible hand is clearly the most famous metaphor in economics. I can't think of number two. You could argue maybe supply and demand is number two, but then you'd have to discuss whether it's really a metaphor or not. What does that mean exactly? And if anything, supply and demand is just, uh, in many ways, a way of representing graphically the invisible hand. So I don't think there's any other uh, contender for the most important or famous metaphor or used metaphor in economics. Uh, And what it has come to mean, well, it means a lot of things to different people, right? For some people, it's a curse word. And for some people, it's a badge of honor, right? For some people, it's the great justification for laissez-faire. And for other people, it's a dangerous guideline toward uh, capitalism run amok. What economists usually mean by it is what Hayek called spontaneous order, what I call emergent order. Other people call it that as well. 
I like emergent better than spontaneous. Spontaneous reminds me too much of spontaneous combustion, which sounds like it could just explode at any second. Like a spontaneous, or it's like you've got chaos, 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 all of a sudden, bang, order. And that isn't really the way it works. Of course, spontaneous has other meanings too, but I like emergent. By emergent order, I mean order that emerges from the bottom up rather than the top down, order that is not designed, not controlled. And by laissez-faire, excuse me, by, by invisible hand, economists use that as a shorthand for self-regulating processes, as if things were designed or moved about by an invisible hand. So what I want to talk about tonight is emergent order and the phrase the invisible hand and try to give you an insight into both of those uh, that I have learned from Smith. And I hope I'll surprise you. So first... My first claim is that when Adam Smith used the phrase invisible hand, how many times did he use invisible hand in his writing? Anybody know? Just yell it out. Two and three are both correct, which is a little bit awkward, kind of a Heisenberg uncertainty principle of economics. Um, He used it once in the the Wealth of Nations, um, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the Wealth of Nations. Some people get annoyed when you don't use the full title. But it is just, I'm going to call it the Wealth of Nations to to save time. And he used it once in the theory of moral sentiments. Where was the third time that he used it? For somebody who said three. He used it in his writing on astronomy, talking, I think, about Jupiter. Okay, I'm not 100% sure about that. Uh, where that is exactly, where that essay is. But he wrote about Jupiter, and he used the phrase invisible hand, but it didn't really mean anything like the way he used it in economics. And so when you answer two, two is a good answer for how many times he used it in economics, certainly. And you could say three technically as well. But that's the only number. That's, you know, it's weird, because I think if you ask people, what's the thing you know about Adam Smith? Well, he's Scottish, right? You probably know that. Uh, he's the second best thing to come out of Scotland, and the first isn't golf. Um, and then, what else would you know about him? Well, he's a free trader. Okay, he's kind of a laissez-faire guy. Okay, but most people don't know much more about him. But they know about the invisible hand. And my claim tonight is that he really used it in a very different way than we understand it. Having said that, here's the irony. He did write about emergent order. He just didn't call it the invisible hand. And more importantly, you could argue that he wrote about emergent order most eloquently in his philosophy book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, rather than his so-called economics book, The Wealth of Nations. So I want to start with a strange question, because I want to introduce us to the idea of emergent order, for those of you who are not familiar with it. And my question is, who decided that Google is a verb? So that's an interesting question, right? It seems weird, because... 20 years ago, Google, 10 years ago, Google was not a verb. Uh, it was the name eventually of a company, but who said it's okay to use it as a verb? Which in America, uh, we have a lot of words. I don't know if they're as common over here as they are in America, but we have a lot of words that used to be the names of companies that come to be nouns or, or verbs, right? So we use Kleenex for tissue. Uh, we use Xerox for photocopy. And we use Google for search on the Internet. Uh, ironically, Google does not like that people say Google is a verb because it risks them losing their uh, trademark on their company's name when it becomes part of the English language. But they can't stop it. 
Now, if you're a Google employee and you use the word Google in a memo as a verb or a noun, they don't like that at all, and they'll tell you not to do it. But outside of Mountain View, California, it's very difficult, and certainly in parts of Mountain View, California, outside of Google, they can't stop us from using Google. Uh, It is not in anyone's control. It's not anyone who's in charge of it. Now, as you may know, uh, many... Many countries have committees that decide what is proper language for their, for their country's language. Uh, I don't, uh, America does not have one, as far as I know. There's no official arbiter of what is American English. Nobody decides whether Google is a verb officially. Uh, the New York Times, which has some gravitas in the United States, the New York Times for a while would not allow their writers to say blog. They had to write weblog which was the original phrase, and they eventually, I think, have given up on that. So blog is a noun and a verb, and the New York Times, uh, which is uh, in many ways uh, some, one of the arbiters of taste in the United States, couldn't stop that from happening. Now, I, I think, does anybody know if England has a, an arbiter of, of what is proper English? Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Professor and the Madman. Anybody read that book? You're missing out. Um, Uh, It's a fabulous book about the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. uh, And the creator of the Oxford English Dictionary thought, well, I'll just write down all the words and decide what they mean, find out what they mean, and write down the meanings. And then the part that made the OED phenomenal when it started was the OED was also going to list where the words first appeared in print. And it turned out it ended up, that process ended up being quite difficult and involved crowdsourcing, really as a primitive um, postal version of Wikipedia Hundreds and probably thousands of people contributed to the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. And by the time they finished the letter A, I think it was, which took something ridiculous like 26 years, they thought it was going to be, oh, we'll just, we'll just knock this out. By the time they got to A, it was out of date, right? The, the, the A volume was already out of date because new words had come along, new usages had come along. So language is alive, but it's not under anyone's control. In France... They have l'Académie Française, which decides what is proper French and what is not. And the proper word in French for the Saturday and Sunday uh, part of the week is fin de semaine, which means end of the week. But everyone in France calls it le weekend, which is uh, really annoying to the Académie Française. But too bad. They can't do anything about it, despite the fact that the members of the Academy of the Royal of the, of the Academy Francaise, despite the fact that their members are called the Immortals. And that's a club I want to be in, right? <laughs> Don't you want to be in a club where they call you an immortal? You know? That's just it's like Greek God, really. It's 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 so far above rock star, it's it's spectacular. Um, so the French Academy does not control what is good French. There is no one in America who decides what is good English and whether Google is a verb, yet somehow Google becomes a verb. So when I ask who decided Google is a verb, the clear answer is no one, because no one is in charge of the English language, so no one made that decision. And yet, Google is a verb, so how could that be? What is the process by which Google becomes a verb? And if we think about it, we can sort of imagine it. Somebody uses it, somebody creates it, maybe a bunch of people actually at the same time. There might not even be a single creator of the word Google. Somebody creates it, and as a result, it becomes useful, and some people take it and reuse it. And literally, by word of mouth, words are spawned, and other words die, like elemosinary. Anybody know what elemosinary means? It means charitable. I actually, when I learned, had a class with Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago, he loved that word. 
He would talk about the virtues of eleemosynary activity, and everybody would go, what the heck? It sounds like uh, gastrointestinal. It sounds a little bit you know, unattractive. But eleemosynary uh, was a common word in, in the early part of the 20th century. But now it's kind of, in fact, when I ask people if they know the word, the only people know it are certain kinds of lawyers, because there's a legal, uh, in America at least, there's a legal concept that involves eleemosynary, and so they've learned it, and it still, it still goes on. Another word that's dying out, by the way, which... Uh, is behooves. Everybody ever say behooves in everyday language? It doesn't come up that often. Uh, Ruth. Ruth is gone. Ruthless, still there. But it used to be you could say, boy, he's got a lot of Ruth. But now it's ruthless. That's still there. Ruth, nobody knows what you're talking about. So English is alive. No one's in charge of it. And yet, we decide what is good English. We decide by our usage of certain words and our abandonment of others. But when I say the phrase, we decide, that's not the way I usually use, ironically, which is a word I keep using tonight, ironically. I'm going to try to cut back the ironically thing. Ironically, it's... Where was I? Help me out. What was I saying? See, when I teach and this happens to me, my students are taking notes. They go back and I see what I was saying. So we decide. Oh, but we don't have a... we don't. Decide. We don't have a word. That's the ironic part. We don't have a word to describe the process by which we decide. Because decide's a bad word. If I say we decided uh, to go out for dinner and have Chinese food, you know what that means when the we is, say, my husband, a husband and wife. It means, well, we talked about it, and we, somebody may have said, oh, we had just had Chinese. Yeah, but... Blah, blah, blah. And eventually we decide where we're going to dinner. It's a back and forth, a give and take. Sometimes there's a deal. But decide in that context is very, very clear. Sometimes you might have a committee. We decide as a committee to do X, and we know what that means. It, we don't know exactly what it means, but it, we know roughly what it means. Maybe there was a vote taken. Maybe there was consensus, unanimity. Maybe it was majority rule. But some sort of voice and opinion was taken, and people made a decision. They had certain sort of rules of the game. But what are the rules of the game for how we, de- we decide what good English is? Because we decide, or in our case in America, bad English. Thanks. So we decide is not the right phrase, but it's the only one I've got. I don't have a word for we decide. If I had to choose a word, think about what word I would choose. I can't. I don't currently have one in English. I'll give you another one. Who decides that real estate's more expensive around this part of town than in, say, another town in, in, in England, which I assume is lower priced. Am I right? Is real estate kind of high here? Just a guess, right? So why are, they, why are there so few tall buildings around here? Is it a law? Is there a law about how tall buildings can be here, right around here? Kind of or really? Can I build? I can't build a really tall building here. It looks like there aren't, right? It looks. My assumption is that, this, and that I assume keeps keeps real estate prices high. So who decides that? Now, if you're how many people are economic students, raise your hand. So if you take economics. One of the things you study is how prices get determined. And we have a a way of thinking about it. There are different ways. One of the ways we use is supply and demand, right? We talk about the fact that in the case of, say, real estate or apples or shirts or haircuts, any one person's relatively unimportant as a buyer, right? But all of us together are very important. So if I decide I'm going to buy 10 more apples a week, there's no impact on the price of apples at all. My store might order a few more. They start notice they're running out earlier in the week. But if all of us start buying 10 apples, it makes a huge impact. 
There's going to be more land devoted to apples. The price of apples is going to rise, at least probably in the short run. It may come back down in the longer run if, if it's easy for people to add land. And that whole process is how we decide what the price of apples is going to be and how many apples they're going to be picked and, and, and uh, grown in a year. But we decide that. We know it's not an, a, a process like we, quote, decide how to go for dinner or whether the committee should do X, Y, or Z, because we know that we don't literally get together and make a collective decision. And yet, if I want to describe what determines the price of apples, the answer has to be we do, where we as the buyers and sellers of apples. So what Adam Smith understood, and what a lot of people in economics understand, if you take it, is that the exchanging of, of product and price and the use of money and the idea that buyers are trying to get a good deal and sellers are trying to get a good deal, that process is surprisingly orderly, right? There's an orderliness to it that isn't planned or designed or consciously implemented by anyone. It comes out of our decisions and actions as if it were orderly. You say, well, how, what do you mean it's orderly? Well, it's orderly in this way. Prices in London are higher. It takes longer to get five miles in London at five o'clock at night than it takes to get five miles in some other part of, of England that you can tell me which, where there's less traffic. It's like every night a memo goes out in London that says, drive really slowly. It's five o'clock. And if you said, well, who made the decision? If I said, well, it's you, the driver. Aren't you in charge of the car? Aren't you the person steering the car? Aren't you the person who puts your foot on the accelerator? And yet you are not in charge of the time it takes to travel a certain distance at 5 o'clock at night in London. We are in charge of it in a really unpleasant way. Right. So emergent order can be not so attractive, and it can be somewhat attractive depending on how you look at things, or it can be extremely attractive. But the question is, what word do you want to use to describe these processes by which we interact in this micro way, this one-on-one way, yet that leads to results that have global implications for prices or for quantities or for what language we use? And a really good phrase to describe that would be an invisible hand process. Because it looks as if there's an invisible hand slowing all the cars down. It looks as if there's an invisible hand that throws out certain words and keeps others that are more useful. It looks like there's an invisible hand that decides how many apples are going to be grown and why more are grown when people want more apples and fewer are grown when people want less. And so invisible hands are a really good way to describe it. The problem is, is that that's not how Adam Smith used the term. Even though, as we'll see, Adam Smith talked about emergent order, when he used invisible hand, he doesn't mean this at all. And so when we use the term invisible hand, we as economists... We're using it as a shorthand for a self-regulating system that has certain orderly processes produced by the interactions of lots of individuals interacting together unbeknownst to each other with no particular plan in mind that leads to something that looks like somebody had a plan. That's why invisible hand's a nice, easier, shorter way to say it, right? But when Adam Smith used the phrase invisible hand, ironically, again, can't help it, it's an ironic night. When Adam Smith used the phrase, he wasn't talking about emergent order. He was talking about, and he only used it twice, he was talking about things that have an unintentional beneficial effect despite a self-interested motive, which is sort of part of what people talk about when they talk about the invisible hand, but that's not the whole thing. So when Adam Smith used it in The Wealth of Nations, he was talking about investors who invested in domestic investments rather than foreign investments. And he said, by preferring the support of domestic to that of foreign industry, He intends only his own security, and by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value, 
He intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. So Adam Smith, when he uses the phrase invisible hand, he means stuff that results that you don't intend that's pretty good. Now, that's related to what we're talking about with Google and, and the price of houses and other things, but not exactly. Because the, the, the thing I'm emphasizing is the orderliness of it. And Smith's emphasizing the description of its value. That, oh, sometimes good things happen when people do selfish things. Now, by the way, we'll, I don't know if we'll have time tonight. We probably won't. But Adam Smith was not a big fan of selfishness. He, was, he, he took our character as self-interested, but he did not believe that self-interest was a... That's, he took self-interest as a reality, but selfishness he was not a fan of. He was a big fan of virtue, and selfishness is not a virtue in Smith's world. His virtues are prudence, justice, beneficence, being kind to other people. So I just want to mention that because I don't want that to, I think that's an important thing. Now, in the theory of moral sentiments, now this is amazing. Smith's talking about how rich people produce good things even though they don't intend to. What he's saying is, is that rich people's eyes are bigger than their stomach, and he actually uses the word belly. He says... People, rich people see the stuff that they want and they, and they generate all this income and then they can't really spend it all in a satisfactory way. But it's good that they're, that they're ambitious like that because it creates lots of jobs for people. A strange thing related to the invisible hand. He says, in spite of their... <laughs> uh, it's great to, when Adam Smith is a populist. Here it comes. He's talking about rich people. In spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, rapacity... Though they mean only their own conveniency, though the sole end which they propose from the labors of all the thousands whom they employ be the gratification of their own vain and insatiable desires, they divide with the poor the produce of all their improvements. They are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life, which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants, and thus without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society and afford means to the multiplication of the species. What he's saying is that in, out in the savage world, you'd have, lo- you'd have some really rich people and some really poor people. Actually, he says, the ambition of rich people makes society a little less uh, unequal than it otherwise would be. And they don't intend that through their ambition and insatiable desires but because they have all these gardeners and all these workers in their manufacturing process, they create all this wealth for themselves that they don't really know what to do with, is what his claim is. Okay, so we could talk about that passage for a long time, but I want to emphasize the only point I want to mention is that it's not, when he uses the word invisible hand, he means something good happens that they don't intend. Um, It's not emergent order. But in the theory of moral sentiments... Smith has a beautiful example of emergent order. And to get there, we need to understand Smith's uh, understanding of human nature, which is very different than the modern economists. The modern economists would try to understand how we behave um, often invokes utility maximization. How many people have heard that phrase before, utility maximization? Raise your hand. comes up in a lot of really boring economics classes. Um, when I interviewed... Uh, uh, Vernon Smith, I confuse this line, I don't get it quite right, but when I interviewed Vern, Nobel Prize winner Vernon Smith about his youth, 
Uh, he talked about being a graduate student at Harvard with Leontiev, and he once said, I asked Leontiev, what is utility theory good for, Professor Leontiev? He says, uh, it's, um, it's good for exam questions. Uh, is what it's really good for. Uh, that's, that's a paraphrase. I forget, I'm off by a little bit, but that's, that's the gist of it, and that's uh, the way I think of it. Uh, so utility theory is the modern economist version of, of what makes us tick. What makes us tick is we acquire stuff, and we use that to uh, make ourselves happy, to create utility or satisfaction. And we do that subject to the constraints of our income. Uh, that's, uh, that's the theory of the consumer. Now, other people, Gary Becker, myself, better include some other people as if I was in that class. So imagine a bunch of other people have said, well, we could we could enrich this model of, of utility maximization to include caring about other people, et cetera. But fundamentally, the view of, of modern economics is that uh, human beings are maximizers. They're trying to get the most of something, uh, and they use goods and services to get there. Uh, Deirdre McCluskey has mocked this by saying, homo economicus is max you, uh, you know, as if that's a name. Uh, max being the first name, you being the last name. And max you is, is, is a certain vision that economists have people. Uh, Adam Smith had a very different vision. He saw us as much more messy and complicated uh, he was fortunate to live uh, uh, before mathematics became an important part of economics. Um, his view of man was this. Uh, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. He comes back to this many times. What does he mean by that? Naturally desires means we're hardwired. This comes naturally. It's not something we're taught or learned. It's in our essence to care about being loved and lovely. And by loved, he does not mean romantic love. And by lovely, he doesn't mean physically attractive. By loved, he means respected, honored, admired, praised, paid attention to, mattering. By lovely, he means worthy of praise, worthy of honor, worthy of respect, a good person. Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. He says, what makes us tick is the approval of those around us and avoiding their disapproval. He talks about them both symmetrically. The the flip side of being loved is to be unloved and to be unlovely. So this is an interesting uh, idea. And he takes this idea and he uses it to give us a vision of morality that really helps us understand where civilization comes from. That's kind of a bold claim. He doesn't make it that way. That's the way I see it. And here's the way he does that. He says, basically, that you and I are constantly interacting with each other, and when you do something or I do something, the other person and those around us react. Okay? So um, suppose I had started my story at the beginning of this lecture. So there was this fabulous chair, and it said, don't sit, and I said... Oh, that's ridiculous. I'm going to sit in that chair. Would you, what would your reaction be? Would you go, that's cool. What a, that's great. Doesn't let, doesn't let a silly rule like that get in his way. Or do you think, what if every speaker sat in that chair and it broke? <laughs> Wouldn't that be kind of awful? So is it lovely or unlovely to sit in the chair? I'd say it's pretty unlovely, right? And if I told you that and I bragged about it or something worse, right? Would you go, wow, what a great guy? Or would you say, would you smile? Would you raise an eyebrow? Or would you make a mental note, I'm not going to hang out with that person? 
And Smith's suggesting that we do that all the time with the people around us. We're constantly sending signals somewhat similar, not exactly, don't misunderstand, somewhat similar to the way we send signals in our buying and selling via price and the decision to purchase or not. So I'm making a decision whether to purchase your company. Not literally, but I'm investing time in you as a friend. And if I disapprove of your actions, I'm going to spend less time with you as a friend. And that, in turn, is going to affect your decision of how to behave, Smith believes. Not always, of course. and It's very imperfect, as as I'll emphasize in a minute. But our interactions, which are subtle, they include the raised eyebrow. They include shunning. They include an unnervous joke as a response to somebody bragging and say or mentioning something they did which you don't approve of. So we have all these interactions, and just as our commercial interactions create an emergent order of price and quantity that has an orderliness to it that no one of us intends, our personal interactions create a culture of norms and memes and civilization and civility that no one of us intends and yet comes to affect us. I'll give you a couple examples. I say in my book, uh, there were, I, I once lived with four small people who would sometimes annoy me and keep me from doing what I wanted to do. They are my children, right? So occasionally, uh, some of you are old enough, I see, in the audience to have children. Some of you do not. Uh, I'd love to take a poll, but I won't as to how many of you strike your children when they misbehave. And I have to confess, there were times when my children annoyed me so much, and of course it was just for discipline reasons, that I wanted to strike them. But I did not, because my wife said, I think that's a bad idea, and we talked about it, we agreed, and I've never struck my kids. But I was struck as a, as a, as a kid growing up when I misbehaved, not in a horrible way, it wasn't a, a belt or a, you know, a punch, but... I was occasionally cuffed, and a couple times I got a spanking. I assumed when I grew up that I would do that to my kids too, but I don't. And I don't know anyone among my friends who does it. Who decided that it's not a good idea to hit your kids? By the way, my editor said, don't put that in your book about wanting to hit your kids. It's not nice. People aren't going to like it. And she's right, but I put it in anyway. Because uh, on, well, on the surface, it's not lovely, Right? But again, think about, go back 200 years or 100 years or even 50 years. 50 years ago, people would have said, what, you don't strike your children? You're a bad parent. You're, you're permissive. You're, you're doing the wrong thing. They're going to be spoiled. So that cultural norm, and in which there are many that have changed over my lifetime, who, did, who made that decision? And the answer is we did in a process that Adam Smith described in the Theory of Moral Sentiments. I'm going to give you the wording of it. It's, 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 very, uh, it's very cool. And he's talking here, uh, he, he, he's talking about God, who he calls the author of nature. He says, the all-wise author of nature has in this manner taught man to resp- respect the sentiments and judgments of his brethren, to be more or less pleased when they approve of his conduct and to be more or less hurt when they disapprove of it. He has made man, if I may say so, the immediate judge of mankind. So you say God isn't the judge. We don't, he talks a little bit about the afterlife, but as a, as a deterrent for bad behavior, which was, he's writing in a time when a lot of people believed in the afterlife. We live in a time where not many people believe in it. But even in his time, even in his time, he did not think that was a very powerful effector of decisions. What affected us, what made us act morally, the driver of our conscience, 
was our desire to be loved and our inherent personal desire to be lovely. And he argued that that's what keeps us in line. That's what's the self-regulating system. Just like prices and profits and loss regulate our economic activities without anyone being in charge so that there's almost never a shortage of anything when prices are allowed to freely adjust. So it is that when we're allowed to freely interact with each other and judge each other, a culture of civility can emerge. To finish the quote, he has made man, if I may say so, the immediate judge of mankind. And has, in this respect, as in many others, created him after his own image and appointed him his vicegerent upon earth. Vicegerent's like his deputy. To superintend the behavior of his brethren. They are taught by nature to acknowledge that power and jurisdiction, which has thus been conferred upon him, to be more or less humbled and mortified. Oh, you don't like that I sat in that chair? To be humbled and mortified when they have incurred his censure and to be more or less elated when they have obtained his applause. What Smith is implying is that civilization, trust, and much of what is good about our culture is emergent. And just as prices emerge through our commercial interactions, civility emerges through our social interactions. Just as my purchase of an apple has little or no effect on the price of apples, but all of us as a group determine the price of apples, my level of civility with you has little or no effect upon the world's level of civility, but all of us together determine what is socially acceptable and what is not, what is proper, as Smith would say, what is uh, part of propriety. Now, it's not perfect. Obviously, there are a lot of things that go wrong in our social interactions. Uh, there's people who are op- opportunistic, who take advantage of it. There are cultures that have really awful norms, right? Racist cultures, anti-Semitic cultures, cultures where, you know, if you had a Jew hiding in your house in, in, in Nazi Germany, the, the, the lovely thing to do was to report him. If you had an anti-communist in your uh, apartment in Soviet Russia, the lovely thing to do was to report him. It certainly was the self-interested thing. I think a lot of those people probably didn't feel it was so lovely when they actually did it. But those norms emerged also without anyone's control. It was influenced, of course, by Stalin or Hitler or whoever was in, in, literally in charge at the top. But they, didn't really, they don't control everything. It's remarkable how much... Uh, how little control dictators actually exert over, over the populace and still they can have an effect through that emergent phenomenon. Uh, let me tell you an example of how great it is that our culture is the way it is. Uh, my wife and I once went for an, uh, a night out to, lit, to uh, stay on vacation in Big Sur, California. Anyone ever been to Big Sur, California? It's a beautiful place. If you've ever seen a picture of the California coast, it's probably Big Sur. Uh, it has beautiful old trees at, uh, up on the, on the mountains, and it has these gorgeous ridges descending down into the Pacific. And if you've seen those ridge pictures in the, in the haze, it's, it's, uh, those are almost always big, sir. So the problem was we only had one night that we had a way to, for our kids to be taken care of. And the, all the places I called required a two-night minimum. So I said, finally, I just said, look, this is really special. Let's just spend two nights worth of money for one night. It's, it's worth it. And so we, we made a deal with, with the landlord. We, we would only stay one night, but we'd pay her for two nights. The person who owned the cottage we were, cabin we were going to stay in. And I said, so where do, I said, but the problem is it's only two days from now. I can't get you a check to hold the room. And she said, oh, don't worry. I'll leave the place unlocked. Just come on in. And when you leave in the morning, the next day, just leave the money on the table, and my cleaning lady will, will, will pick it up and bring it to me. And as an economist, this did not seem like a very good idea. Uh, I saw three things that could go wrong. 
Number one, I don't leave the money. I tell the lady that I left it, and then I accuse the cleaning lady of stealing it. That's possibility number one. Possibility number two, I leave the money. The cleaning lady steals it, uh, reports to her boss that the money wasn't there, and the landlord accuses me of not paying. Option number three, I leave the money. The cleaning lady gives the money to the, to the landlord, and the landlord uh, tells me that she never got it. All three could have happened. Uh, so when we, I, was, I wasn't thrilled about this. As I left the place, I fanned out an unusually large number of $20 bills upon the table, which, uh, which I was told to leave, where I was told to leave them. And I did something totally irrational, which I enjoyed anyway. I took a picture. So she said, oh, I didn't get your money. The cleaning lady said there was nothing there. I said, well, there's a picture. Of course, I could take the picture put the money back in my pocket. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> but it made me feel good. It was an irrational thing. It just was kind of nice. Um, but everything worked out fine. I left the money. The cleaning lady got it. She gave it to the landlord. And my wife and I got to spend a glorious uh, time in the redwoods and in the, in the ocean. And that trust allowed that to happen. It's often people think about economics is about money or the economy is about money, right? But what was important about that transaction wasn't, oh, a night got spent at the cottage that would have otherwise been empty and the, the, the landlord made, made a bunch of money. And now what was great about it is my wife and I got to have a, a great day together and landlord got some money too, which was all, that was all to the good. But it's not just the money. It was the, it was the uh, enjoyment we got from the hike along the ridge that, uh, that we still remember. To summarize, when Smith uses the phrase invisible hand, he doesn't use use it to mean hidden order or emergent order, but he does write beautifully about self-regulating systems, and he saw our culture and civilization as an example of that. It was driven by our hardwired desire to be loved and lovely. So what does the invisible hand have to do with the invisible posterior? That's an American word for rear end. What, I don't know what's the, the semi-polite word that you... I know there's a semi-impolite word in, in, in England to talk about, because um, I saw My Fair Lady. Um, thank you. Um, what does my talk have to do with my decision uh, to, whether or not to sit in the chair? Why do I want to sit in the chair? So, in my book, I tell the following story, which uh, is... Eerie, because I, I, I'm echoing the story today. You'll, you'll see why. So how many people here have heard of Ted Williams? Raise your hand. So Ted Williams is one of the greatest American baseball players uh, of all time. That's a sport we play in America, baseball. And I'm a Red Sox fan. I went to a football game last night. Turns out, this is another American baseball joke. It turns out, I don't, I didn't, I don't want to tell you which, what game I went to, because it, I found that if you say what team you root for, everybody hates you. Uh, except the team, people who root for that team. So the American joke is every team here is the New York Yankees. They're despised by everybody except the fans of that team. Uh, I told one person uh, I, I was going to go see the Tottenham. Oh, shoot. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, Tottenham game last night. And he said, I said, are you interested? He said, oh, I'd rather have my eyes scratched out. I thought, well, okay. He said, okay, so he's not a football fan. You know, that, that happens. He said, no, I like Newcastle. Oh, okay. Sorry. The concierge didn't want to give me, I could tell, he really didn't want to give me directions. He wanted to send me on the wrong train. Because <laughs> he roots for somebody else. I don't know, it's crazy. But Ted Williams, a great baseball player. One of my favorite players when I was little. And there's a story told about Ted Williams that he had a very distinctive Cadillac. And he drove around Boston in it. And he had a driver, a, a kid who 
he befriended and who was his driver and helped him out and they became buddies. And one night the friend wanted to go out on a date and he wanted to impress the date so he wanted to take her in the Cadillac in Ted Williams's car. And Ted Williams says, sure, go ahead. So he's driving the car in Boston and he pulls up to the restaurant and a policeman pulls in behind him and says, what are you doing with Ted Williams' car? You're, you're a thief. Every, every cop in Boston knew Ted Williams' car. I think he sped a lot, went over the speed limit and as a result he was well known to the policemen of Boston. I don't think they ever wrote him a ticket. They all loved him. They said, what are you doing with Ted Williams' car? And he explained, I'm his friend, it's really okay. And he eventually convinced the policeman that it was okay that he was in Ted Williams' car. So he goes into the dinner with his date. And, oh, before he goes, the policeman says, excuse me, he said, you know, fine, you're not a thief. He said, but by the way, he said, would it be okay if, uh, if I just um, sat in the car for a minute while, you know, while you're in the restaurant? Oh, sure, go ahead. So he goes into the restaurant, comes out an hour, hour and a half later. There's six policemen sitting in Ted Williams' car. <laughs> so the first one had called all his buddies and gotten them to say, hey, Ted Williams' car, so you want to sit in it for a minute? That's all they did. They sat in Ted Williams' Maybe they went in shifts, by the way. Maybe 10 or 20 of them came through that night. <laughs> I have no idea. But Adam Smith helps us understand, why would anyone want to sit in Ted Williams' car? I mean, what is, the th- what is the thrill of that? And I try to... I asked that question in my book, and I tried to give what I think is Smith's answer. Smith understood that celebrity, people who are great, are loved. We pay attention to them. Rich people, famous people, powerful people attract us, whether we like it or not. And, of course, that attraction is what makes people want to be rich, famous, and powerful, says Smith. People say, he says people don't want to be rich, famous, and powerful for what they can actually do with the money, the fame, and the power. They like it because... People pay attention to him. And he has some wonderful stories, which I'm not going to tell, about what happens to people after they lose wealth, fame, and power, and how they're, they're, they're despondent. Because no one fawns over them anymore. And Smith is so disgusted by it. He hates that. That's why people do it. But he says it's a reality. And they see rich people's lives and famous people's lives as so perfect. He says that's why people are so upset when, when famous people die young. Like Princess Di, even Elvis Presley, not so young, but when they die, it's like the end of this beautiful fairy tale. How It's a terrible ending. They should be immortal, says, Smith says people feel. And similarly, so, so they had this awe of Ted Williams. And just to sit in his car is some taste of that. And, of course, that's me today. I want to sit in Adam's... Why would I want to sit in Adam Smith's chair? It's so silly, but it's such a fun idea. So did I sit in it? No, of course not. It said, don't sit in the chair. (laughs) I stroked the arm, though. I did. Because I thought, you know, maybe... Actually, it was bizarre. It was a totally emotional, non-rational thought. I went over to the chair. I saw the thing that described it. I saw 1759. I saw it said, don't sit in it. And I just impulsively reached out and stroked a little bit of the wood on the arm. (laughs) Go figure. I don't know what that was about, but that's... Smith understood. So Smith said, I want to be loved and lovely. When he said, I want to be lovely, I'm not going to go into it because we don't have time, but he talked about how there's, we act as if there were an impartial spectator watching us. Right? So I'm in that room. No one's literally watching. But he says, I imagine someone watching me. And he says, sometimes I like to deceive myself, by the way, and pretend I'm lovely when I'm not. Right? So I could have kept half the money that night in Big Sur. And I could have said to myself, well, I did the right thing. One night for the price of two? That's not fair. I'll only leave half. 
I made a rash decision. I can justify that to myself. I didn't. I left the whole thing. Do you believe me? No. I want to be lovely. I want you to. Th- I want to be loved. I want you to think, oh, what a nice guy. I left the whole thing. So you have no way of knowing whether it really is true. But similarly, so I act as if I had an impartial spectator watching me. And what Smith's point is, which is so beautiful, is that even when no one is watching, I'm watching. I'm watching myself. I'm going to bear some price, not very big, but some price if I'm unlovely. And that has some, not completely effective all the time, but some deterrent effect. So I didn't sit in the chair. So what Smith is saying when he talks about loveliness and when he talks about this interaction between individuals is that our small acts of kindness and equally important, our applauding of other people's kindnesses and our negative disapproval of their unkindness, that helps make the world a better place. There is a temptation to say, oh, what's one? So I sit in the chair. What's the big deal? I'm not going to break one person. But if you remember Kant in the categorical imperative, who was, some say was influenced by Smith, if everybody sits in the chair, it will break. It'll be worn out. So the, it's, it's a, there's an incentive to sit in the chair. Sure. And if I don't sit in the chair, it's not going to affect anybody else's decision. And if I sit in the chair, it's not going to affect anybody else's decision. So I can say to myself, well, it's in my self-interest to sit in the chair because it's just one sitting in the chair. What Smith reminds us is, is that there's a lot of sitting in the chair if you're not careful. And if you're constantly sitting in the chair, if you're constantly doing the selfish thing because it's rational, because you're not going to be caught so you can free ride, then the world's not going to be as good a place as it otherwise would be. So I'm looking around today. I don't know what this poppy campaign is. It's something to do with soldiers, evidently, right? Am I right? What does it do for them? Gives them money? What do they do with the money? They buy poppies. No. It has something to do with Flanders Field and World War I. And, come on, help me out here. Why are, they, why are these people on the street asking for money and giving out little poppy badges? There's one. The British Legion looks after what? Past wars. Past wars helps them out. So that's a nice thing, I think. I don't know enough about it, but it seems like a nice thing. Why do you wear the pin? Now, one reason is very rational, very self-interested. What is it? So they don't bother you again with the box. Like, hey, it's like, I got the pin on, you know? I got the pin on. I gave. Trust me, I'm in. But it also is a way to show that you're lovely and to show to other people that it's good to be lovely and to remind people it's an ad. It's an ad. It says it's an ad for you. As the giver, and it's an ad for everybody else saying, hey, this is a good thing. That's a beautiful thing, right? That's one way we applaud loveliness. Now, I'm going to close. Economists confuse rationality sometimes and goodness. Explaining something doesn't justify it. Sometimes we can and should rise above the natural incentive to free ride and make a contribution. Smith helps us understand that, and taking it to heart can help us remember that not everything that is our own self-interest is necessarily what we should do. We can strive, we should strive for loveliness. Thank you very much. I'm going to stand. Are you going to stay there? Yeah. Russ, thanks very much indeed. You, you are lovely, <laughs> and I'm going to make you even more perfectly lovely by giving you your very own coffee batch. Oh, no, that would be you. No, that would be unlovely. No, see, that, that's, that's fake lovely. Now, if I wore this, that's a form not of self-deception, but deceiving others, right? 
So if you could buy these cheaper than you could get them from donating, that would be a terrible thing. Or worse, fabricate your own. A counterfeit poppy pin, right? <laughs> but it is, this is beautiful. I, I'd have to earn it, but I appreciate that. Thank you very much yeah. indeed. Good stuff. Well, uh, Russ, thanks very much indeed uh, for that. Uh, we have uh, plenty of time for uh, questions. I intend to take them in, uh, in groups of three. And we have some of the excellent LSE uh, stewards uh, around the hall uh, to give you a microphone. Can I just ask that we, when you ask your question, you think about maximising group utility when you ask it, i.e. please not to be uh, too long. I saw one in the middle there. Uh, there was a lady? Lost her. Okay, so the gentleman in the middle with the watch, can we pass the microphone to him, please? And then, sir, when you're done, could you pass the microphone to the gentleman behind you? Thank you for such a great talk. Um, I think the term invisible hand is what you would say to someone when it could lead to a moral or legal responsibility in that environment. It deny, it stops that individual from uh, que- asking any more questions. And regarding uh, the hitting of children phrase, is uh, in the Bible there is loads of quotes on reasoning why you should definitely hit their children, and they're pretty horrible if you. If you have a care to... I just know one quote, spare the rod and spoil the child. Yeah, there's some... Uh, is that her- from the Bible, actually? Yeah, there are some even worse ones in there about children going to hell if you don't hit them. And uh, so that, for me, Not then- my... Uh, I'm in the first half of the Testament, so I, that, that one's not in mine. Okay. <laughs> Good man. Just- uh, and just to finish... Uh, uh, so it's, it's not we that are responsible. It's the people in charge, a.k.a. the church. Thank you very much for your talk. Russ, do you want to take them one at a time, or are you happy doing three at once? I'll happy to take three. You'll help me remember. Okay, the gentleman just behind him, please. Um, hi, I've, I've read The Wealth of Nations, but not um, the theory of moral sentiments. They were written 17 years apart. So do you feel that there's any difference in how Smith conceived of humanity in the two works? Did he you know, change his position yep. anyway? Great question. That's a great question. question. And uh, the, there's a lady down here in the second row, please. Uh, yes, I'd just like you to comment on, um, to apply what you've put out really well to bankers and governments in recent years and, oh, and, 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 and what, what has gone amiss there because they clearly are not bothering about whether they're loved or not and, mm-hmm. and you know when you've got some countries with half the young people unemployed etc I mean absolutely yeah um, so uh, first question uh, I don't think the church is in charge of much uh, they used to be a little bit more but uh, they're in a very competitive world uh, because that's the way the world is. So uh, churches respond to, to uh, market forces very slowly. Uh, they respond to incentives very slowly. So I don't, I don't know to what extent uh, they're in charge today, of, even of their adherence. Um, but it's an interesting point. The second question about the difference in timing of the two books. What I, what I love about Adam Smith, which... Uh, which I came to realize when I, when I looked at him, is that um, he wrote the theory of moral sentiments in 17... He published it in 1759, published the uh, Wealth of Nations in 1776, and a lot of people then want to say, as you, you're asking, well, maybe his view of mankind cha- humanity changed, maybe he, he, was, he had learned some things, etc. The problem is he wrote the last edition, he published the last edition of the theory of moral sentiments in 1790, in the year of his death, where he made some serious revisions... So Theory of Moral Sentiments actually bookends his life, and uh, 
I really do think it's, I like to say it's the book that was ever with him. It's the book that I think he chewed on and thought about a lot. He had other books he wanted to write. He was a bit of a hypochondriac, always felt ill and didn't make as much progress. You know, uh, somebody once asked me, do you think his life was a disappointment because he only wrote two books? Uh, I've written four now. I'm way behind. (laughs) Two two books like that, he's doing fine. Yeah. Uh, The other question. Oh, bankers and government. So I actually write in the book a little bit about uh, the culture of um, the lack of loveliness in the financial sector. And I, I speculate that when bankers were investing their own money in partnerships, which they were until uh, uh, I think it was the late 80s when that changed, if I remember correctly, in America at least, uh, they, had a very, they were more prudent. Uh, what happened was they were able to borrow money. And when they borrowed money, they were investing a very small portion of their own money and investing a lot of money on the behalf of other people. Uh, when governments started to rescue banks that invested recklessly, they, strangely enough, encouraged recklessness. Um, When you uh, subsidize something, you tend to get more of it. So I argue that the culture of Wall Street, for example, uh, or the British environment, which is really quite similar, uh, was distorted by that decision on the government to consistently bail out, not the investments, but the lenders to the investments. And that lenders are the people who have not much of an upside and have a big downside, so they're very careful with their money. If I tell lenders, oh, don't worry, I'll absorb the downside for you, I'll get taxpayers to absorb it, then uh, you're going to get uh, much more risk-taking and much less prudence, and you're going to get a culture that's where loveliness is selling people stuff that they can't pay back, lending people money for loans they can't. Like, that's grotesque. And I have heard people, I've talked to people personally and said, yeah, I, dropped, I quit that mortgage company because I saw what we were doing. It was disgusting me. I couldn't hold my head up. But a lot of people said, hey, this is great. I'm making a lot of money. And my price, if it turns out badly, is going to be fairly small, which is, I think, just absolutely atrocious. Um, let me see if I can tell a, um, a UK story. Let's see if this is, um, let's see. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell the story. So... I interviewed uh, Ricardo Rebonato, who was the chief risk officer of the Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS. And Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, well, I'll start with Ricardo Rebonato. Ricardo Rebonato wrote a beautiful book before the financial crisis called The Plight of the Fortune Tellers. Anybody read that book? Really great introduction to risk, uncertainty, investing. It's, uh, it's a very, very thoughtful book. In that book, he explains at length that most of the techniques for evaluating risk are not very good. Uh, in particular, value at risk, VAR, which was used by lots of companies at the time to assess whether they were too risky or not. So he writes in the book, this is 2005, 2006, that VAR, VAR is not reliable. Everybody knows that it. it's, it's just, you know, it's the best we can do, but it's not very good, and we should be careful, et cetera, et cetera. So he's the chief risk officer of the Royal Bank of Scotland. So if the chief risk officer of the Royal Bank of Scotland understands how risky their world is, how could they go broke? And I, know that, I think I know the answer. I'm pretty certain that the Royal Bank of Scotland's chief risk officer every day, maybe more than once a day, talked to the chief executive officer, the CEO, the chair of the Royal Bank of Scotland, about their risk, the riskiness of their portfolio. And if somebody totally understands it and they risk, take risky bets anyway, that tells you that the incentives to be cautious have been unloosed and been, and been destroyed. 
So to me, that's a perfect example of what went wrong. People say, oh, the people didn't realize what was happening. It was, you know, it was crazy time. People got overconfident. Ricardo Rubinato wasn't overconfident. He wasn't some peon in the trenches saying, gee, I'm kind of worried about this investment, this loan we're making. He's the chief risk officer. <laughs> if he knew and they still didn't do anything about it, that means to me that the incentives were not very good. Is it, uh, um, what's his name? Um, I'll leave that story. Another question. Some more questions. More Uh, questions. Uh, There are two right next to you, Stuart, on the top, and then uh, the gentleman in the middle over there when those stood on. Sir, you're on. Thanks. I'm very interested in your idea of spontaneous order, but I want to know where the limits are because we create loads of rules, and you know, all capital markets, for instance, have many rules. Uh, When do rules work? When when do we decide we need them? And when can we rely on spontaneous order? That's a good question. So, uh, I, I, I may. I, oh, sorry. We'll take three of them. Yeah, sorry. British cultural yeah. oh, norms oh, yeah. here. Russ, sorry. For a minute. It, this on. never happens in America, but but it's great here. I love it. Go Hello. ahead. Um, I just thought I'd I like the beer too. Go ahead. Just thought I'd ask um, what you have to say about Ayn Rand uh, because you mentioned selfishness a few times in a negative way. Obviously, she's much more respected in the U.S., but still, it'd be, be interesting to hear what you have to say yeah. about Ayn Rand and Absolutely. Smith. Absolutely. Good question. And then Third. The, the gentleman in the middle over, over here, passage along that row. Wave, sir, wave. For those of you on the, on the ground floor, this gentleman doesn't have a, a beard. Um, my question is, um, is there an um, invisible hand mechanism that would explain the emergence of money? The emergence of money? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the first question, uh, I, I tell the story. I don't know if I tell in the book or not, but I tell the story of, you know, if I come home one day, and the stereos, the music in my house, the, the radio or whatever it is, is really, really loud. I know how to turn it down. There's a knob. And it means if it's really, really loud, I don't assume that it just got loud on its own, right? There's no emergent order of my radio knob. One of my kids has jacked up the volume, and I know how to turn it back down, right? How do you turn down the traffic? Well, what's, where's the knob for traffic? And my claim is that for emergent order processes, the knob is often hard to find. And sometimes we're turning a knob that we think will lower the volume, and it doesn't. So, in the case, and so this is my trying to give you a feel for what sometimes rules work and sometimes don't. So what's a rule that would not work with traffic? And ironically, strangely, strangely, it would be widening the road. I mean, widening the road, that's got to reduce the traffic. I mean, how could it not reduce the traffic? That's like 2 plus 2 equals 4, or better yet, 4 minus 2 equals 2, right? If I widen the road, that's got to reduce the traffic because there's more room for everybody. And, of course, we understand that that might not be true. And in practice, it turns out not to be true, that more people then come into the road, and the road gets just as crowded as often as it was before. So that rule doesn't work. Uh, if we price the road... That can, will reduce the volume. That does turn down the volume, but it does it in a way that harms all the people driving. So that's not a very attractive rule. And I think people have misunderstood, economists included, misunderstood why there's so much opposition to, uh, to road pricing and to peak load pricing on roads. People say, oh, they don't understand the economic. Yes, they do. It's bad for them. It's good for the people who get the revenue. It's bad for the people who drive. Not all of them. There's some who are going to benefit, people with the highest value of time. But in general... Pricing roads is bad for drivers. And, and you can argue that maybe there's some way to return the money and a way to drivers, but if you're not careful, you'll unwind the incentive effects. 
So uh, the, the, the simple answer to your question is some rules are good, some rules aren't, and, they're, and it's complicated. Uh, and some rules are better than others. So in the case of pollution, for example, air pollution is an emergent phenomenon that comes because people are free riding and they, they abuse the, the shared property that, that we have. So they put poison into the air and poison into the water. And there are some rules that are better than others in dealing with it. And I would argue that rules that in general use uh, pricing are probably better than not. But sometimes you mess that up, too. And you destroy there's certain natural incentives to reduce pollution. They're not very big. They're not as big as we might like. But the question is, is the actual rule that we do impose, is that going to make things better? And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. It's generally uh, it depends on the politics of the matter. Because people are going to often use that rule as a way to benefit themselves under the guise of helping others. Um, See uh, Bruce Yandel's work, Bootleggers and Baptists, for those who are interested. Second question was about Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, um, I loved Ayn Rand when I was 17, uh, and then uh, I, I grew up. Um, I, I, still, I still like her. Her books are still entertaining. Uh, I'm a big fan of some of her economics, but her vision of humanity I find pretty repulsive. And so the idea that we shouldn't help other people or that, uh, that selfishness is a virtue I think is is grotesque, and I think it appeals to only a small group of people. It's not, it's not very popular in the United States. It might be more popular here uh, in the United States than here. Her books sell well, which is an impressive feat, but I think they sell well because she talks about how everybody's entitled to happiness. Oh, that's, that's a good, I like that, I'm into that. Okay, fine. But her economic arguments, I think, have been remarkably ineffective uh, outside of a very small group. Now, I'm generally in that group. I'm a pretty hardcore free market guy, but I don't find her case very compelling. And one of the reasons I don't is I think, and this is very Smithian, I think a lot of what gives life its satisfaction and meaning is when we join together with others voluntarily. Voluntarily. Okay? So how do we do that? I think we do that in two obvious ways and a thousand others that are not so obvious. But the two obvious ways, we get together and we start a company. And it's a commercial enterprise. And we create a product that people like, and we thrive, and we can expand, and we hire more people, somewhat akin to what Smith was talking about, and we make the world a better place. Because we give them something that they want, and we give people a, t- a way to spend their time during the day doing something glorious and creative in their jobs. That's something we do together voluntarily that's commercial. Now let me describe something we do voluntarily that's not commercial. A bunch of us get together, and we create some food and take it over to a homeless shelter. Is that irrational? Well, I mean, that's one of the most satisfying things that people do, right? We come together for this lecture. Oh, it was free, wasn't it, monetarily? You didn't have to pay to get in here. Oh, well, then it's not, that's not free market. Because that's a misunderstanding of what free market, what voluntary, non-coercive is. Non-coercive means we choose to come together. So you've chosen to come together to hear me. We're creating something unique right now, which is this give and take, not just the conversation, but the facial expressions and everything we do when we, when we, when we get together. And that's a huge part of the human enterprise. Yes, I'm proud of my achievements. Yes, I like to stand on the mountaintop. Ayn Rand's heroes are always on a mountaintop smoking a cigarette for some reason. I don't know why. But that's just, that's a small part of life. And if that's what your, your, is your appeal, you're not going to appeal to very many people. Because most of us want to join with other people and do great things. Whether they're commercial, whether they're charitable, whether they're just for fun. Those, those are the three things we do together. And they're most of what we get deep satisfaction from. Third question was what? Money, creating money. Oh, creating money. Money emerges. Yeah, I assume money emerged. No one, no one decreed it. Uh, you know, the, the, the classic story, I don't know if it's true, is that you know, people use shells or other forms of, of exchange to make it more convenient to, to exchange. Because otherwise, 
You have to find somebody who wants to buy what you've got to sell. And money is a wonderful thing that lets us avoid that uh, coincidence of wants that, uh, that otherwise would make it harder to exchange. Okay, more questions. Well, I thought money was printed in uh, the Bank of England's printing presses in Debden, I guess, to show you how wrong I was. Let's come back downstairs. There's a lady on the back row just in front of the steward there. And then, yeah. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, you said that Adam Smith distinguished between selfishness and self-interest. So can you maybe explain what the exact difference is and if you can actually always distinguish it? Okay. And then the gentleman just in front, please. Um, referring to Adam Smith's use of the term invisible hand, did he also speak of the converse where a person sets out to help the world, but unintended consequences, they hurt the world, yeah. the, other, the other side of it? And if you could pass the microphone behind you, please, that's great. Uh, following on from what you're saying. Sorry about that. Um, following on from what you were saying earlier about uh, bailing out banks that ha and the perverse incentives that come from that, what, I know it's not directly related to the talk, but what do you think the alternatives were and do you think they should have bailed out the banks? Great question. That did that? Uh, so what's the difference between selfishness and, and self-interest? Self-interest is you obviously care about yourself. Uh, Smith writes about how, you know, we think of, let me, let me find the quote. It's, it's a very nice quote. I'll pull it up. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to answer the second... What was the second question? Uh, oh, the converse. He does talk about it. Uh, he talks about unintended consequences that are negative. Uh, and and uh, but he doesn't explicitly have a metaphor for it, the invisible elbow, or I think now it doesn't. Um, let me find this quote. So he talks about the fact that we, are, we think of ourselves as, as the center of the universe. Here it is. Um, so the example he gives, somewhat famous among uh, fans of theory of moral sentiments, is suppose you find out there's been an earthquake in China and millions of people are dead. Uh, boy, that's depressing. That's horrible. Oh, gosh. Oh. And you might make a donation to charity. You might uh, worry about your business that has a, a plant there, a factory there. He says, but later that night, you'll sleep like a baby because you'll have forgotten about it. And if you see a little feed, news feed on CNN about it, you might say to your, to your spouse, oh, isn't that terrible? Yeah. And then you'll sleep like a baby. But if I tell you you're going to lose your little finger tomorrow in an operation, you're going to toss and turn all night because it's your little finger. That's the part that people always quote. And they say, boy, Smith sure had a cynical view of humanity, didn't he? But the rest of it is what's interesting. He then says, if that's the way you feel, if you care more about your little finger emotionally than you do about millions of Chinese, if I gave you the opportunity to save your little finger by killing millions of Chinese, would you do it? And the answer is, of course not. Who would be, he says, who would be so monstrous? Who could do that? And he says the following, and this gets to your question. Though it may be true, therefore, that every individual in his own breast naturally prefers himself to all mankind. Yet he dares not look mankind in the face and avow that he acts according to this principle. So he may be self-interested, but he's not going to always act selfishly. He's going to often put his self-interest away and spare those Chinese and suffer through the loss of his little finger. He feels that in this preference of himself as being important, they can never go along with him. And that how natural soever it may be to him, 
it must always appear excessive and extra- extravagant to them. So if you put yourself first all the time, which is what selfishness is, it's obvious you care about yourself more than you care about other people on average and maybe almost always. But if you always act that way, you're selfish. Okay, so that's my attempt to try to answer that question. It's a good question. What was the second question? Uh, oh, we already did that one because I answered that. The and the third was to bank. So what should yeah. we have done? Yeah. Well, it's easy for me to say I don't bear any responsibility, have no historical legacy uh, as a result of my decision. So when I criticize uh, Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson and, and, uh, and others and Tim Geithner in the United States, uh, that's sort of cheap shot, right? I have, to, I have to confess that. But when they say we had to, my, answer, my question is, why? Oh, it would have been a catastrophe. Evidence. There isn't any. You can't. Now, you could argue, well, you can't prove that point. So it, it was a question, and under the duress of the moment. But my answer to that is, did you really have to bail them out 100 cents on the dollar? Because that's what they did. They said, oh, you made your AIG. You insured J.P. Morgan Chase. You insured uh, Goldman Sachs for, I think it was $9 billion dollars. And Goldman Sachs, isn't, they're not idiots. They knew that there was a chance that AIG wouldn't be able to pay. So isn't it, wouldn't it be right that when AIG went bust and didn't have enough money to give to everybody, that, that Goldman Sachs wouldn't get the full $9 billion they were promised, but a fraction of that? And wasn't AIG negotiating that very thing before the government state was saying, hey, there's not enough to go around? Would you take $0.70? Cents? Would you take 85 But the Geithner stepped in. And said, no, no discounts. Everybody gets 100 cents on the dollar. And I th- they justify that, too. They have a story. They'll say, well, it was late. We didn't have time. Blah, blah, blah. Of course, Hank Paulson came in the weekend of the crisis. And it came to Congress and said, I need a blank check for $700 billion. Or the world's going to come to an end. They said, we don't act that. We don't do that. Come back in a few weeks. The world didn't come to an end. He came back in a few weeks. And, you know, my dad said... Oh, well, they improved it, didn't they? You know how they improved it? They put a bunch of special interest stuff in the bill, so it wasn't just a blank check for $700 billion. It was a blank check for $700 billion that went to some special things that people of Congress wanted. It's horrible, absolutely horrible, all done in the name of we have to. The world's coming to an end. It's a catastrophe. We're going to go off a cliff. And uh, now, maybe we would have. And as I said, if I were in that position, maybe I would have done that as well. But I certainly would have tried to find any way I could to have it. Those people take, a, take a, what's called a haircut, a discount. And I would have made the people who make the decisions that were awful pay a price for it, which often many of them did not. And I just think, I just think it was a terrible, terrible thing. And people say, oh, we got all the money back. Yeah, we got all the money back, which means that we told people that in the future, when you make a reckless decision, don't worry about it because you'll get your money back. That's the real cost. It's the misallocation of capital and decisions that results from those incentives, not the actual money that comes to and from the taxpayer. More questions. Got it. Let's go. Um, down the front here, uh, please. Can we get a microphone? Uh, who, who wants to participate in this unique event that we are creating together? <laughs> Anyone down here? Sir. Um, forgive me if this is naive, but um, looking at the free market and Adam Smith's self-regulating system... The free market seems to make sense. It seems to make logical, rational sense. Yet, why does it still take such a big hit from criticizers? And why do people say it's flawed and they're greedy and this and that? Great question. And then at the top, there's a microphone coming to you and uh, now, very rapidly. And then you over there, sir, went, yeah, that lady there. Yeah. 
Uh, I was wondering, uh, uh, what's the attitude of behavioral econ uh, economists towards the notion of uh, invisible hand? Do they find it laughable or are they inspired by it? And the, the other coin of this, the same question is, what do you think others mate would say about behavioral economics now? Okay, that's a good one. And the gentleman there. Yeah, uh, you read us a, a small passage from the theory of modal sentiments and about the invisible hand, uh, and how uh, you said you, that uh, basically by creating jobs, they, they would benefit, uh, rich people would benefit society. But if you read a bit further in the theory of moral sentiments, as far as I remember, uh, Adam Smith claimed that it would be f uh, by sharing what they have produced that they would. Uh, actually benefit society and through their humaneness order justice so isn't that more of a claim on his side not that they unintentionally create more jobs or value for society but that they unintentionally adhere to certain social norms for example through the invisible not the invisible the impartial spectator were you reading your copy of the theory of moral sentiments up there at the, at the on the back row. That was very impressive. Uh, free markets. Uh, 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 just a reminder, the, um, the Library of Economics and Liberty, which is the sponsor of EconTalk, my podcast, has a uh, version of, of the Theory of Moral Sentiments uh, online that has, you can access without charge, which has a great search engine, and I encourage everybody to read the original um, and uh, enjoy Smith in his own words. I quote him as much as I can in my book. It has almost every one of my favorite passages. There's a few I couldn't get in, uh, like where he says, uh, makeup is weird because why would you want to fool other people about what you actually look like and you're only fooling yourself? Um, that's a little strange part. I didn't get that in. But he has a few and a couple others, but a lot of great quotes are in my book, but you should read the original. A lot of my favorite quotes are in my book, but you should read the original. So the first question was, uh, capitalism is so great. Free markets are so great. Why don't we have more of them? Uh, and so the answer, of course, is that uh, that's an illusion. Capitalism is awful. Free markets allow people to plunder other people, exploit them, and thank goodness that we don't have them. That wouldn't be my view. Um, so my view is that um, it's hard to trust invisible hands. Uh, we like things that are controlled. Uncontrolled, you know, I, I like to say, do you like controlled hair or uncontrolled hair? Most people want controlled hair, right? There's a few people like the uncontrolled thing, but most of us like, we like controlled. I like to come home, but I like to turn down the stereo. I don't like to just let it kind of bounce around on its own, right? So I have a lot of biases as a, as a sentient person towards things that are, someone's, oh, I, oh, good, someone's in charge, right? That feels comforting. Like this Ebola thing, right? We just sort of assume, oh, well, they'll take care of it. Who are they? Oh, I don't know who they're exactly, but they're people in the government and the World Health Organization. They'll, they'll take charge of it. Well, they're struggling, right? I don't think any, I'm not saying the invisible hand would solve it either, but I'm just saying we like the idea. And you know where it comes from, that idea? It comes from when we were really small. Remember that? And we held our parents' hand, and that felt good, right? We are hardwired to like people who take care of us. Uh, Similarly, we like to take care of other people, which is where paternalism comes from, and it sometimes runs amok, right? So we have a lot of emotional baggage about trusting, I would argue, invisible hand processes. The other point I would make, which is uh, 
which Hayek would make if he were standing here. I like when people say, you know, what do you think Adam Smith would think about Twitter? Which is a question I got this afternoon. And, and, and I, I made the point, and Tim alluded to it earlier, uh, Addison's very critical of what he calls the quackish arts, which are a way that people self-promote. And Twitter is, I'm on Twitter, but it's, I'm per, it's perilously close to, to one of the quackish arts when I retweet somebody who says something nice about me. It's, I feel a little bit creepy and unfaithful to Smith, and then it may be you know, going into the realm of the quackish if I'm not careful. But Hayek, so I, I'm uneasy a little bit saying what Smith would have said if he were here about, uh, you know, uh, well, I know he'd root for Tottenham, of course, but, um, but Hayek, if he were standing here, would answer your question a different way, because he answered that question. He would say that economists tend to be skeptical of the free market because it leaves less of a role for them to be in charge. So there's a natural bias on the part of economists to be in favor of more centralized things because they can be in power. And so that's part of our problem of those of us who like free markets. Second question was... Behavioral economics. Oh, yeah. So, so Smith, Smith, many people would say Smith was the first behavioral economist because he's very into self-deception. He doesn't have, as I said, a tidy vision of, of human beings. And, um, uh, you know, Lynn Kiesling is here. She's done some really interesting work, which I, I apologize, Lana, don't cite in the book because I, I, I didn't have room and haven't read enough of the neuroscience literature. But there's a lot of work in neuroscience, Correct. That, that Smith's vision of empathy and sympathy are really based on the biology, even though he couldn't have known it, the chemistry, even though he couldn't have known it. Uh, third question. Uh, sharing. Uh, it, it's, uh, you, the, oh, the, the last the quote oh, yeah. goes on. Uh, yeah, so I apologize. My reading of the theory of moral sentiments is different. Uh, I don't think it goes on to say that. I don't think he says that rich people should share their wealth. I think he said he would say that they should share their wealth if they want to be lovely. But he was not an egalitarian uh, in any policy way explicitly. He occasionally said some things in favor of certain kinds of progressive taxation. I think some of those claims have been exaggerated. Uh, but I'd be happy to, russroberts at gmail.com, if you want to send me a passage you think I've misinterpreted, uh, I'd love to see it. Any other questions? Okay, I think we've got time for just three more questions. And I want to have one of those questions. I, I ho- hope you feel I've learned it. <laughs> so the lady over the back. Um, I wholeheartedly agree that um, if the modern society abided by Adam Smith's uh, philosophy, um, the world would be an uh, absolutely fantastic place. However, we live in a time where um, we're living against a backdrop of social, political, economic instability. So how, how would the, the Adam Smith's uh, philosophy of the invisible hand be applicable to modern society? Uh, and I'm going to my, my question is similar to that question, so I'll, I'll, I'll put it in now. I mean, Russ, to what extent do you think um, Smith's work was of his time and place, and he could have only written it about Edinburgh? Have you ever been to Edinburgh? Are you going to go there? No, You're going to go there tomorrow. Make it on this trip, I'm That's sorry a shame. To say. But to what extent? Which means, which, and I'm not going to get to the Lafroy Distillery either. I mean, life's full of disappointments. <laughs> it's a shame. But but. To what extent you've you've made his work in your your book very relevant to to modern issues? To what extent is it sort of uh, applicable over all times, or to what extent is it limited to particular societies and particular cultures and a particular Scottish enlightened place? That's my second one. We've got time for just one more. The lady down here on the front row. Here comes the mic. Please. Hang on. Um, I think my question sort of goes along with the theme as well. Um, I find that society is very enigmatic and very hard to predict. Sorry, enigmatic. Very hard to predict yeah. um, um, 
um, uh, and you mentioned of how like the emergent process is also visible in our social lives and everything. And there has been points in history where uh, the emergent process have got, um, made decisions that are not um, history is not proud of. Sure. Um, so, how, what do, how do you think that in the future, with you know social instability, how would that uh, lay out in the future? Okay, those are. Uh, well, we have about another hour and a half, right? Um, <laughs> four minutes for three really deep questions. So the first question is about instability. Um, people will always try to use force to get what they want. Uh, that's just the way the world is. And uh, I'm a big fan of decentralizing power because I worry a lot about tyranny. Um, and I think, so when you ask about it, I'm not sure, there, there are many types of instability. I don't think instability, I don't think stability in and of itself is a good thing, okay? So um, a lot of people have been um, uh, critical of uh, various policies because they've led to, say, instability in the Middle East. Well, I'm critical of most of those policies, too. But the fact that, say, Syria is un- inst- unstable, I don't view that as a crisis. Syria, when it's stable, is awful, right? Syria's Assad is an awful person, a, a cruel and, and malicious uh, dictator. And the fact that his society is in turmoil now, I don't view it as inherently bad. It's not good. I don't know how... It's easy, easily possibly the case that something worse will emerge, right? And it's, easily, it's also possible that something better will emerge. I have no idea which of those is true. And I don't know how to influence them. So I would stay out of Syria if I were in charge. I'm not in charge. But uh, I, I don't think... The United, I'm speaking now as an American... I don't think it's in the United States' interest to try to steer the Syrian process. I don't think we know how to do it. We have many cases where our in, in, uh, interventions like that have led to worse outcomes. And I don't think we understand the process, right? So, you know, it's like saying, uh, I, I was once on a bus ride. The guy next to me was crazy, literally, a uh, very strange person. And at one point, it's a little bit alarming, he took out, uh, he had a radio that wasn't working. And he took off the back cover, and then he took a, screw, a screwdriver, and he went like, started jamming it into the back of the radio. And I was kind of uneasy about this. I said, uh, you, you okay? He goes, yeah, the radio's not working. I said, uh, what are you doing? He said, well, sometimes this helps. Yeah, really. Sometimes it destroys, most of the time, it destroys the radio. So if you don't really understand what jabbing the screwdriver does, I'd stop jabbing the screwdriver as a place to start. So, you know, my, my, my first rule of economic policy is the same rule of, as Madison. First, do no harm. And I think we do tons of harm all the time. Good intentions, bad intentions. I don't even know what it means to say we have good intentions in Syria. Who? Who's we? Who's intentions? How could a government have intentions? You're talking about President Obama has intentions? I don't even know. He's complicated. He's one person. And he's not totally in charge, right? He's got to deal with Congress, political forces, etc. So second question was all times and all places. The greatest thing about Adam Smith, to me, one of the greatest things is his respect for individuals, his respect for ethnic groups, he never says anything disparaging about the poor, the Irish, about people from Africa, which is, in his day... Probably disparaging about the English, I would have thought. But what? Is it, isn't he disparaging about the English? No, or? I don't think so. Not too bad. Not too bad. But he's remarkably respectful, he, and respectful in the following way. He believed that people could make their own decisions to lead good lives, the lives they wanted to lead. He did not believe in paternalism at all, about groups that at the time people were very paternalistic about. Many 
many uh, great uh, British thinkers believe that slavery was good because Africans can't, can't, they can't, they're not mature enough to, developed enough to, to make their own decisions. The economists are the ones that said that's not true. Everybody has the right and the ability to make decisions for themselves. And econ- economists, I'm ashamed of a lot of aspects of my profession, their defense of the bailouts, for example, but at least we got it right then. A lot of economists came out and said people are human beings. They should have the freedom to make their own choices, and slavery is evil. Um, so that's the first thing about time and place. Secondly, uh, what makes us tick hasn't changed since 1759. So if he's right about wanting us, us wanting to be loved and lovely, uh, I think he's right when he says that uh, people will spend extra money for a watch that's more accurate, but it doesn't make them any more punctual. I think he was on to something there. Uh, and you know, he says the reason they like the watch is because it's really cool and works really well, even though they don't pay any attention to the outcome. And that's just as timely today as it was in... Uh, you know, I watched Tim Cook announce the Apple Watch. The first thing he said was how accurate it was, and I'm thinking of Adam Smith. Like, really, you're really telling me that's really that exciting? Like, it's, it's only off, I think it's accurate up to, uh, was it 23 milliseconds or five? It doesn't really matter, does it? It's less, than, it's less than a second, right, as opposed to my primitive iPhone, which is only accurate to within, like, 20 seconds. Oh, my gosh. Right? Uh, what was the third question? Um, oh, um, the question about um, uh, enig- uh, enigmatic society, how difficult it's to predict, it is to yeah, predict. Yeah, yeah. So we don't, we don't understand. I don't, you know, my argument is what I think economists, the only thing we understand that's deep and true is emergent order. It's the deepest and truest thing we understand. And we ought to be thinking about it, writing about it, researching about it. And we don't fully understand it. To some extent, it's, un- it's not understandable, but almost by definition, but not totally, because there are forces that steer things in different directions. Um, you know, we see this. We see this in lots of in lots of evolutions and revolutions of societal attitudes. For example, we can have some understanding of it, but we can't. But the, the idea that we could control it, I think, is naive on the one hand and dangerous on the other. So, thank you very much, folks. A lot ladies, of fun. Great ladies, great questions.